Stan Rosenberg is the founder and director of Scholarship and Christianity in Oxford, or SCIO, and he says that even in the age of podcasts and social media, we should still read old books. So why read the old books? Let the fresh sea breezes of the ages blow through and challenge you. And what it does is it, it sets a, a critique, a control against my thinking. If I think differently than Augustine or Gregory or Aquinas or Luther, it's not that they're right and I'm wrong or they're wrong and I'm right. It's that they're different. Stan earned a PhD in patristics at Catholic U, where he wrote a doctoral dissertation on the 4th century church father, St. Augustine. For nearly two decades, he's been an academic faculty member teaching theology and religion at Oxford University, Wycliffe Hall. He argues that the lessons of early church history should impact not only our broad view of truth, but specifically the relationship between science and religion. In recent months, he helped produce a theatrical play on the surprisingly unknown life of Charles Darwin, which draws out the role of imagination in any learning that sticks. Joining Stan today is Alexandra de Sanctis, a reporter at National Review who also hosts her own podcast, For Life. Zan writes regularly on religion, culture, and politics, and speaks frequently on college campuses, including her own alma mater, Notre Dame. If you're a regular listener to Faith Angle, you may recall that six episodes ago, Miranda Kennedy of NPR also hosted a conversation on the life of Augustine with philosopher and author James K.A. Smith. And while that conversation focused on the relevance of Augustine's mindset for our complex times, this one draws out that fourth-century church father's remarkably advanced view of science and psychology, of memory and imagination. Enjoy the conversation. So, Stan, I was hoping you could start by talking a little bit about why you think Augustine matters today. I, I'm a Catholic, and so to me, he's obviously very relevant to my faith, mm. but to maybe a, a non-religious person or a secular person thinking about the world as we see it, modernity, why should we care about Augustine? Oh, thank you. Interesting question, because it engages so many different aspects. One could just look at Augustine as an idiosyncrasy of a time and take a scholarly narrow perspective on what did Augustine say, when, why, how, what are his ideas. But he's somebody who can allow us to have a much bigger conversation than that. He was one of the most influential writers in the history of the West who has profoundly shaped Western culture through his 92 books that are still extant, extant meaning 92 books are still available to us. So, and amongst that is his greatest work, The City of God, De Civitate Dei. And it's a massive book that challenges everyone around him and challenge the way with theological concerns that have shaped his time but continue to shape our time. So in the lead up to writing the book, the uh, third and fourth centuries are really critical. We often talk about ideas having consequences, but I think more importantly we need to talk about ideas having a context. And We only understand people in the world in which they live and can then decide and wrestle through how do we apply it. So for Augustine, he was born into a world of massive change and uncertainty. The third century was one massive civil war. A 35-year period from in the middle of the third century, you had 70 emperors in 35 years, only one of whom died of natural causes. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's one long civil war. Right. In the midst of that, when you have just either been the direct or the indirect cause of the, the preceding emperor's death, and you're the new emperor, what do you want to do? Well, you want loyalty. And they impose loyalty. And this is the time when some of the great persecutions of the church happen. During this time of chaos, severe chaos, it changes and disrupts a culture. 
we often hear our leaders tell us how a war is going to affect us. I don't think I've ever heard a political leader talk about the cultural impact of war. I wish they would. Just look at the U.S. in the last 20 years since the war on terror began. War changes a society, and it changed his culture. And then in the midst of this chaos, amid another great persecution, another significant outbreak of civil war, this young upstart comes to the throne, Constantine, wins a victory in Rome that he shouldn't have won, and he wins using the ancient Christian symbol of the key row, the sign of the cross. He made the victory, claiming Christ. He immediately after made Christianity a legal religion, and essentially the favorite religion. So they begin thinking about Rome as a Christian entity, as a Christian society, Roman roads carrying the gospel to the world. And they redefine themselves, their culture, against not what happened in the first, second, or third century, or not against the broad, the ancient traditions, but in this new light, and actually adapting many pagan ideas, like the peace of the gods, the Pax Deorum, the way that God protects us. As the century wore on, you have more civil war, and then at the end of that century, you have outbreak of new chaos, and in 410 AD, you have this Germanic tribe, the Gothic tribe, under Alaric, sack Rome. And this was unheard of, unexpected. You had two groups react. You had the Roman intellectuals claim, this is only because of Christian times. You Christians gave up the gods who protected the empire for 800 years, and this is your fault. Meanwhile, you had the Christians saying, how could God allow this? This was Roman and Christian. Roman roads were carrying the gospel and you had this tremendous sense of dismay. I think that sounds very much like our world. And so you have the City of God written to critique both sides. The first half of the City of God is a rejection of the Roman intellectuals and a critique of their position, their history, their sense of identity. And then he turns, beginning with Genesis, a critique of the Christians and challenges their view of Rome. Who are they? What does it mean to be a Christian in the world? What is it to relate to society? And what is secular society? And so the questions he asks are all perennial questions, perennial at least in that they have survived the test of time and still are influential for us today. And you have many drawing upon the Augustine tradition, whether it's the Bush administration attempting to make use of his notion of just war in the move to a war in 2003 or later conversations. And so a writer of perennial influence and authority. I can attest to the fact that that's true. I first, I think I, I had read some of the confessions when I was in high school. I was raised Catholic, so I've kind of always had Augustine in my consciousness. But at the University of Notre Dame in my intro mm. to political theory class, we read some of the City of God. Just what you were saying about the historical context of when Augustine was writing it, when I read it, it made perfect sense to me as someone who is very interested in politics, someone who cares a lot about the United States, about our government, where it's headed, about conservative politics to some extent, and particularly social conservatism. It was presented to me by my professor, Patrick Deneen, who some listeners might be familiar with, and presented to our class as, look, Augustine's talking about whether we as Christians can find a home on earth. And maybe we could order a society towards what's good, towards a common good, towards justice. But at the end of the day, we were not created for earth. We were not created for a city on earth. We were created for the city of God. And that's what Mm. we have to strive for. And that's been a really orienting thought for me as someone very bound up in politics, obviously young, but over the last couple of years, that's been kind of a guiding principle for me. So I I certainly think you're right. It it is relevant to us today. Yeah, I, I, I hear you speaking a lot about the importance of context and trying to understand that better than we often do, not just grabbing 
the ideas themselves as if they were written in our own moment. And so there's something about studying the patristics and taking keen interest in this time period that I think you focused on in your, in your academic work that has appeal, but also I hear you saying with, with Zan, you know, sort of has some relevance to today. Talk to us about how that might apply, you know, with journalists versus historians focusing on the moment versus focusing on larger picture. Yeah. How do you think Augustine bears out with respect to trying to cover the day-to-day fast-moving realities? Well, Augustine, on one hand, was a person of his time, and we should be careful not to simply appropriate him. I don't think we can just port him in lock, stock, and barrel without reflection. So I wouldn't want anyone working through these ideas with us to just say, I'll just apply Augustine. That would equally be wrong. He was a person of his time with foibles, problems, mistakes, things that we would now regret, and yet profound ideas working through major issues that so far appear timeless. Augustine challenged a view that I think is really important for us to understand that the sacred and the profane are not so simply divisible in the world around us. Augustine envisioned a world quite different than his predecessors and was really the first to do it. One of the interesting things about Augustine is when Rome was sacked, and this was, make no mistake, this was a massive event. This was, this was a devastating moment for the Roman world and a Roman mind. Only two Christians, so far as I'm aware and have seen, reacted. Jerome, the great biblical scholar, makes the plaintive cry, if Rome fails, what can survive? And that's all we get from Jerome. (laughs) So what is that, about 10 words or less? (laughs) And Augustine, we get the great and arduous book. And very few people have read the whole of it, nor do they necessarily need to read the whole of it. But there are some really essential sections, like Book 19, which really captures the center of his cultural and political vision of what it is to live in the world today. And he makes the argument that the world that we live in is not evil, it's not bad, it is afflicted, it is torn apart and it's alienated, but we shouldn't confuse alienation as just pure evil. And that's where he really set himself apart from his predecessors. In rethinking the problem of evil, almost all of his books deal with the problem of evil in one way or another, and he rethinks of evil, recasts the problem of one, technically the philosophical term is privation, but he recasts it as privation or corruption, corrosion. It's like rust on my bicycle I ride around Oxford. You know, my bike has lots of rust, but I can still ride it. It's still a, a useful tool. This is not the bike I go on long-distance rides with, Josh. It's, <laughs> that one doesn't have rust. But you know, my, my commuting bike is not a very nice bike because it could get stolen. But I can still make use of it. And that's how Augustine conceptualizes the problem of evil. It's, it's a corrosion. It undermines the integrity of a thing, but it doesn't completely destroy it. And so the world in which we live is alienated. It's afflicted. We should expect problems. We should expect, we shouldn't necessarily expect the worst of everyone. And I think that's an important reflection. But we should expect failure. We should expect alienation. We should expect to be disappointed, even as one also can see signs of glory and hope and interest. And both are present. We live into this, this world. And it's too steep of a curve, too eschatological to point to merely absolute good or absolute evil. We don't live in a world where there is both absolute good and evil. And in fact, for Augustine, there is no absolute evil. That's part of the notion of privation theory is that absolute evil is nothingness. So there is good and then you have, and there is absolute good who is God, but everything short of that is a relative deprivation. The Oxford fantasist picked up on this. 
So if you think about some of the literature that many people read, where for Tolkien do orcs come from? Well, they're elves who are twisted. They're corrupted. There's corrosion. You, you get this within various sorts of writing, people thinking about it. And so as we interpret the world around us and as thinking about the journalists who engage here with listening to the podcast or working with you, to understand the ways in which alienation, dislocation can define the culture we live in. Augustine wouldn't look at the local church, therefore, and say, well, there's the city of God. He wouldn't look at Capitol Hill or the White House and say, there's the city of man. Because for Augustine, the city of God is where you find those who obey the will of God perfectly. And that's not to be found in any absolute form here and now. And the city of man contains those who utterly disregard and reject the will of God. And these are conceptually major archetypes, but they don't absolutely exist in a sense in the world in which we live. And so to interpret the world we live in well, one has to expect this deep kind of intermixture. You mentioned uh, Tolkien a moment ago, and you know, there's, there's this sort of capacity he had to find not alienation, but fellowship, kindred spirit at the Eagle and Child. <laughs> what happened, Stan? You're in the UK. Uh, is it really shut down? Is it really becoming a hotel? What's uh, Well, it's becoming a hotel, but it's still going to be a pub there. But I don't know what its ultimate outlook would be like. I do hope the food is better in the new level. I think the world, the worst hamburger I've ever eaten in my life was at. Are we gonna get sued? <laughs> you might want to delete that one. Uh, yeah. So the Eagle and Child is gonna be rebuilt as a hotel, and I don't know what the plans are to maintain any of the old ethos. But it's still supposed to have a pub, but the building will look very different. Well, I'd love to come back to Tolkien a minute later. I I love Lord of the Rings, so I'm sure there's more to talk about there. But I wanted to shift gears a little bit Mm. and talk about how antiquity or how the patristics help us understand the relationship between science and religion. And I think this is something where I think of Thomas Aquinas. But I think most people today, we really struggle with that a lot. There's this idea that, well, if Christians believe it, then it must not be real or it must not be scientific or you're just enforcing your morality. Tell me, like, the real science, right? And so I I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Sure. Well, I think— First off, I want to just say it's an important contextual note to remember that the terms science and religion are 19th century terms. So we're talking about something over thousands of years using modern language, which sometimes misses the point by the language can cover over the reality. So one of the things that's very interesting, I cut my teeth in my uh, academic work on Augustine's commentaries on Genesis and wrestled through how he interpreted the world and how he conveyed that inter- his interpretation to his congregations by reading his sermons and working through his sermons on Genesis. For Augustine, Genesis was a preoccupation, and indeed for many authors during that time. So you find the Cappadocian authors like Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianz and Basil, a bit later Maximus the Confessor, Boethius, all are deeply interested in it. And first thing that they're doing that I think is really important is they are doing a change on the way the Greco-Roman world interpreted certain matters. So the Greco-Roman world in part played with idea and this came out through some of the Gnostic writers, so an early semi-Christian, semi-pagan, semi-Jewish group of people all intermixed. Russell with the idea that the world is evil, that this is the place in which we live is necessarily not just broken but devastatingly bad, and, and the source of which was evil. So an evil god, a secondary, second-rank god created this, and you get this in various creation myths from the ancient Near East. And that the good god is somehow trans, is transcendent, but transcendent in a way that's so different 
And what these authors are doing, like Augustine and the, and the Cappadocians, is bringing in a conversation around the value and the validity of this present world. And that's really was a critical change that says that this world is worth focusing on and that there is something that's important here. They then secondly go on to, to draw upon a doctrine that was developed, first started in uh, Middle Judaism before the time of Christ, and early Christians picked up on it, and that was the doctrine of creation out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo. That changes the way they begin to think about this earth, and they begin over time. It takes several hundred years to think through many of these ideas. No, no idea pops out fully-fledged all at once. But as they wrestled through it, began to see a sense in which the world is contingent, it's finite, it's also changeable. And these ideas came into the West and influenced very much the history of the development of philosophy and then the history of science in the West because it created a notion that humans are somehow related to the world and the human mind is related to the world so that critically the human mind can interpret something about the natural world. And that comes out, for example, if you read Galileo's writings, Galileo cites Augustine fairly extensively. In fact, in his letter to the Grand Duchess Christiana, he cites whole long passages of Augustine's commentary on Genesis in his defense. And it's clear that the early modern authors, scientific writers and thinkers, Newton, Boyle, Locke, Galileo, draw upon extensively these sorts of writings in the way they think about the world and begin to think about the world. Through this, they're thinking about the world as having a structure and a coherence, a re replicability. So one of the great developments of early modern science was to say, we cannot trust what the mind sees in its own light. Reason is untrustworthy. There's a rejection of the earlier period. And this actually comes out of their reading of Augustine. Augustine's idea that the humans, coming out of the Confessions that you've mentioned earlier, that Confessions Book 10 in particular, that humans can't absolutely trust what they think because we've been corrupted, because the corrosion has affected us. doesn't mean we can't know anything, but we lose the ability for certainty. Certitude is lost because we have an untrustworthy access to reality. We distort things. I remember, I remember things badly. I'll remember this conversation five weeks from now, and I'll think how brilliant I was. <laughs> and you'll be shaking your head in shame. <laughs> we remember things through the frame of our ego, through the frame of our experience, through the frame of our brokenness. And that affects all knowledge. And so that idea shaped, came into a, a shaping role into the early modern period. And so the, the thinking, in some ways, my sometime colleague Peter Harrison has written extensively on this and very much reading his works on it. But the view is, if we can't trust the mind, what reason in its own right, what do we trust? Well, what if I try an experiment and then I repeat it and I get the same outcome and I then repeat it multiple times, I get the same outcome? Well, if, and this is when the notions of probability are developing, if I can demonstrate continuity then this can be established as a fact. And this was using the tradition of early Christian theology to help them think through it. So a distrust of reason in its own right, drawing upon experimentation and expectation that the human mind coheres, and that the world is substantial and viable and there's a value to it, it's worth studying, and that there is a pattern. This all comes into shape the way early modern science was done. And we're 
the beneficiaries to this day of that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about, you know, doing studies, because these days I feel like if you want to make an argument, you have to just point to, you know, 14 studies that make your point, and then everyone has to just defer to you. And if you don't have the studies, then you must be wrong. And I find that very frustrating. (laughs) You don't want to abandon reason wholly. Right. Yeah, so many things can't be quantified like that, or maybe we just haven't funded the right type of study yet. I can still make my argument, you know? (laughs) Yeah, as as you look from the UK at your tribe here in the United States that you left what? Uh, <laughs> 20 years ago. ago. Oh, almost 21 years ago. Do you see distinct omissions or mistakes that we are making either in the evangelical community, the Catholic community, you're of, of Jewish heritage yourself, Christian believer today, mm-hmm. but are there errors that we talk on this podcast for faithful listeners will know about sort of fundamentalists versus evangelicals mm-hmm. are, are privy to making about this science? I think there is the, what we, we bring our own preoccupation with our own history and we, and, and assume the way we interpret the text is a natural reading that every sane person through time would have read a text. And that's just fundamentally not the case. We've read the scriptures in different ways over time. And what we describe today as literal interpretation is actually a relatively modern phenomenon growing up in the 19th century. Literal interpretation in this way, it doesn't mean that there weren't some ideas of being historical, but for Augustine, for example, Genesis 1 to 3 was not a natural history of the design of the cosmos. It was a revelation to the angels of God's intent of how the cosmos ought to work. So it was God telling a story to the angels of why he was creating the cosmos, what its purpose was, and so that changes the way one engages with it and thinks about it. And so our preoccupation with certain interpretive frameworks has really, I think, created so much havoc. It separated us into different tribes. It's made it nearly impossible to talk about and across the issues. I'm on the advisory council of Biologos Foundation, working through ideas of evolutionary science for broad communities. And it's a it's a great challenge to do that often. I did that in conjunction with your predecessor, Mike. Mike and I, Cromerty and I shared that together in engagement with that. And there's a need to think more thoughtfully outside of the boxes and not just assume the way we define the world this moment is the way that everyone around us defines it. And that's a kind of humility. I think what I see missing is, a, and one could say that of me, but is this deep humility to say that our reading of Scripture is dependent in part on our time period and we have to break apart from it. There's this great quote, since we did Tolkien earlier, let's go to Lewis. There's this great quote in one of Lewis's short essays, Why Read the Old Books. It was actually a foreword that he wrote to Athanasius's book on the Incarnation. And he says, why read the old books? Well, when we look at and we talk with people in the same time period, I'm paraphrasing here, but when we have people from the same period, they all have certain same assumptions. They may disagree radically with each other. But he says, you take a look at someone like Churchill and Hitler and Roosevelt, on some fronts, it looks like they couldn't disagree with more with each other. And yet they all had the same assumptions in the big picture about the nature of the world that they shared. And they couldn't be more alike in many critical aspects. So why read the old books? Let the sea, fresh sea breezes of the ages blow through and challenge you. And what it does is it, it sets a, a critique, a control against my thinking. If I think differently than Augustine or Gregory or Aquinas or Luther, it's not that they're right and I'm wrong or they're wrong and I'm right. It's that they're different. And that ought to cause me to say, huh, 
Why are they different? What possessed Augustine to read Genesis so differently than what I grew up with? Is there something worth learning from that? And we could both be wrong, but it challenges our historical myopia. With, with our own time and our own people group, considering the notion that all human persons descended from one couple, why should it or should it not be an affront to us if science teaches something other? Can I tell a story? So you walk down, you may remember this, you've walked there. If you walk down Park Street in Oxford, you come to the Natural History Museum and walk into the Natural History Museum. And this is the place where the great Huxley-Wilberforce debate happened over Darwin. But as you walk into it, you it looks like a cathedral. And it was, in fact, consciously designed to look like a cathedral. It has a great cathedral arch. And at the top of it, the arch of the cathedral for the entryway, it has an angel, both hands open. And on one hand, he's holding a book, as in the Book of Life or the Bible. And the other hand, he's holding a dividing cell. I said he is an angel. I forget the gender here. The angel is holding both. We forget that there are two books. That was actually Augustine's phrase. Augustine coined the notion of two books, the Book of Nature and the Book of Revelation. And each have something important to tell us. And we need not put them in opposition. Apposition, perhaps, but not opposition. Now, the Natural History Museum has another story to it, which is really interesting. It was built with funding from the sale of the King James Bible. So the funding that created the opportunity to build this cathedral of nature, the book of nature, was paid for by the copyrights that Oxford University Press enjoyed from the sale of the King James Bible. Spin around and look across the street at Keeble College, and you see one of the great chapels in Oxford. This great brick edifice looks like an Orthodox chapel on the inside. It's a shocking building in many ways. There you're looking at a chapel built by the proceeds of science because the, the donor of that chapel made his money by importing bird guano from the South Pacific after the discovery of nitrates in the 1920s and the uh, creation of fertilizers for agriculture. And so you have across you have a, a museum of nature built by the Bible and a chapel, Christian chapel, built by science. And that's a nice image that I think we can bring to bear in our thinking about how these can work together. They need not be in opposition. I don't think I've answered your question though directly there. No, I think that's perfect. It's a helpful okay. illustration, definitely. <laughs> There's that painting, too, of the Behold, I Stand at the Door. Yeah, the, the, Hunt and, uh, the Holman Hunt painting in Keeble Chapel. Yeah. I'll have uh, to visit. I've always wanted to go to Oxford. I'm a big Lewis fan, so I, I oh, love Oh, you'll to have go. to come visit it. I don't know if the Eagle and Child is still open enough. It's already closed down for yeah. innovations. Usually these things take a while. There was an aspect of your question I didn't quite get to, though. Um, Should it disturb us if yeah. science proves that we didn't descend from the literal? Well, I think, we, first off, we really are not. There's still so much debate about how to manage Genesis well in a way that's faithful. And yeah, there are Christians who would think that theologians and scientists like myself who interpret Genesis as a story, as a poem that conveys realities but is not there as a natural history. I mean, there are people, of course, who think that that's a lack of faithfulness on our part. We're debating. We're wrestling over what is the best way to interpret it. But science is part of this world, as is, in fact, the Scripture. And it's important to remember that Scripture is written in human language. I believe that there is a divine origin to it. It is a gift of God. But revelation, this is the amazing thing. The God of this world, to me, as a Christian, the most amazing thing is that the God of this world chose to use the ordinary, the mundane, 
the uncertain, the messy. And that was showing up preeminently in Christ in this life, but is also equally shown up in the use of human language to convey deep truths. Human language that's uncertain, it's frail, it's messy. And our ability then to engage with it is. And we shouldn't be very confident about our hermeneutics. We should be confident about the in an absolute sense. I think we need to really be much more humble about our ability to interpret, even as one wants to assert a strong confidence in the source material. Let's be a little bit more humble about our ability to manage that source material. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about scripture today, Genesis in particular. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about your role with the Museum of the Bible. I haven't been yet, unfortunately. It's right here. I've been meaning to go. It's on my list. But if you could tell us about the resources that are available and what you think it kind of adds to culture that that's there for us. Well, I've been involved with the Museum of the Bible going back to 2011, 2012. Actually, before it was Museum of the Bible in the earlier iteration when it was the Green Scholars Initiative. My role has been to run a program for biblical studies students in Oxford to help them think through how do they engage and maintain scriptural text and ask these hard questions and do it with a sense of faithfulness and in a way that can both maintain their own faithfulness and long-term integrity and build vital relationships with other scholars that will transcend time and space the moves that we make. I've also represented them throughout the UK on some of their working through some of the issues with researching a few of the artifacts. And then I was on the academic advisory board along with 25 other scholars that reviewed the materials as they were the the professional museum writers would write up the various texts and our job was to review these texts and in some cases it's the uh, the horses were out of the stables and we we're trying to pull it back but it was reviewing and revising rewriting texts to engage with it the goal of the museum it has certainly received criticism and uncertainty and people have been uncertain how to change it i think it's really clear in the intentionality as it evolves i think we have to be careful to remember that people develop one of the things i get that i find very troubling is when historians and journalists both have this this besetting sin if you will yeah. if i can put it that way we don't allow the people can change and so if we find evidence of a particular kind of wrongdoing or an attitude or an interpretation five years back, 10 years back, 20 years back, we hold that as being the guiding principle consistently. Well, I don't know about you, but my ideas, my thinking has changed vastly over the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years, and I need to wrestle with others. And so I think with the museum, its purpose and identity shifted, I think, in some ways. I don't know if the board and the founder would agree with this, but as I read the materials, as I've been involved, I've seen a shift to a strong view that it should be about education, not apologetics. It's not there to persuade of a particular theological view. It's there to present, engage, and allow people to attempt to come to their own. Now, have we unwittingly manipulated? That's possible. That's certainly been, manipulation has been the critique and claim that that a number of other scholars and people bring. Nobody's forced to go into it. But it's been quite open. And so I think some interesting positions. Do we interpret one Bible or multiple Bibles? Well, you wouldn't expect a typical evangelical-based museum to acknowledge that there are multiple Bibles. The museum in its narrative floor, sorry, in its history floor, acknowledges that we're dealing with multiple different texts, multiple traditions of reading the text, and we don't really have one Bible. We have Bibles that we are wrestling with, that the transmission history is is messy at times, and there's uncertainty. So it tries to bring a real sense of what this text is, how it's developed. The impact floor, I think, 
points out many things that are really important for a generations that have become increasingly biblically illiterate. I don't know if there was need for a museum of the Bible 50 or 70 years ago, but if you look at the levels of biblical illiteracy amongst educated and uneducated alike today in North America and elsewhere, it's stunning in many ways. And so this section on impact floor where you can walk through the literary tropes from the Bible that show up in various novels. You know, it's very interesting. It just, that helps create. Or to connect those who have ideas of restitu- of present reform and restitution being important. Well, the Bible, ta- the Museum of the Bible takes up that conversation in a way that certain groups have used the Bible. It's had an honest self-view with bringing in the slaver's Bible. So one of the horrible versions of the Bible that existed was one that was created in the 18th century in London to support the slave trade was one that excised Exodus and any other passages in Scripture that suggested that freedom was was what God desired for us and that the slaves might be free. So any idea of freeing the slaves was, ex- was excised in a you know, Thomas Jefferson cut out what you don't want approach. In this case, it's not the miraculous. It's the freedom from slavery. That's presented. So it's an un- there is a relatively... One could say we could have done it differently or more, but I think for any group to have offered such a, a, a relatively unblemished view, I think has been a useful tool. I wonder if you could say a little bit more, Stan, about the theatrical. Going to the Museum of the Bible is, is triggered a little bit by you know, the blinding light that comes through some of the, the sort of New Testament overview and the Torah presentation, sculptures. It's definitely not just looking at one heavy 17th century book after another. And so you also have spent some time with this Mr. Darwin's Tree theatrical production, really a a play. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see the relevance of non-didactic instruction being timely for us. Certainly. I think one of the goals we had with the museum which I have to say, I'll, I'll say I was resonated against. I reacted negatively to this at first. So as one of these, this academic editorial team, we were under stricture to write everything to an eighth grade level in less than 60 words. And I, I'm at the Ashmolean v- Museum. I'm a member of the British Museum. Go to the British Library. I can guarantee the texts there are not written to an eighth grade level. <laughs> and so I reacted quite negatively, I have to say, and challenged that. And they pushed back. And A, it was the law, the rule. But I came to really respect that because the point is to engage and make it engaging beyond. Now, we need materials that go beyond what the Museum of the Bible is. The Museum of the Bible is a starting point in terms of information. It's not the end point. If you think of it as trying to give a comprehensive view, you'll be really disappointed. And that's just not possible. But I think to understand it as giving an entry point to understand key aspects, to see these great texts is important. And and that goes to this position of, of public engagement. How do we take hard ideas or difficult ideas or complex ideas and convey them? So as I work with science and religion, one of the great challenges is Darwin is known primarily as a caricature. Whether you have the neo-Darwinist or the anti-Darwinist, on either side, Darwin is, is used as a hammer. Either you're hammering him or you're using Darwin to hammer others. And it's a caricature of Darwin. It's not the real Darwin. He was an amazing man. You go to his house, Downhouse in Kent, it's a lovely house. It's just a, such an interesting house. It's not presumptuous. It's a large house. They ha- obviously had money. 
but it's it's not a grand aristocratic estate. It is a world of interest. His back garden was set up for himself and his children to have a place of wander around the woods that fitted a naturalist. He built a toboggan, a wooden toboggan, to go down the grand staircase for his kids. <laughs> I had never thought about creating a toboggan for my children to use indoors. <laughs> down the grand staircase. I don't have a grand staircase. I have a staircase. But you learn – he becomes human. And that human becomes then someone you can have a conversation with. Caricatures become apologetic points, either apologetically with or against. And it's not a serious discussion. It's not a thoughtful debate. And what plays do, it opens up the world by – it uses words. But more than words, it uses imagination and image. It uses experience together because we are people who are image-bound. We have words, but we work well beyond our words. We live by liturgies of life. We have experiences. We experience culture. And the ways in which we manage those or mismanage those shape more profoundly what we think than words alone. And so I found myself, I never thought as an academic, I'm a, I'm a trained patristic scholar. I did my PhD at Catholic University. I did a very traditional philological academic approach to, to my study. I never imagined that I'd work with curating of museums or producing of plays. It was not in my, my expectation or job description that I suspected. But I've come to see that as perhaps the most important work that I can be involved in because it conveys ideas in a way that, you know, 20 people will read one of my articles at most and 19 of them will ignore them, what I have to say. But this is a way to have, to help bring ideas to life that can have real impact and development. And I don't need to convince someone of Darwin thought, Darwinian thought. I just want to convince them to stop, pause, ask questions, and think. If I can help people ask new questions, they may not come to the same agreement. They may not understand I'm right. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> they, may not, they may not agree with me. And that's okay. I don't need them to agree with me. I need them to take the issue seriously in plays like this do that. We're actually getting ready to premiere a play uh, in another month and a half, another month on Michael Faraday, who is perhaps the, uh, it's produced by the same creative team that brought the play Mr. Darwin's Tree, which I've shown probably about 25 times. The Darwin play I've shown about 25 different locations in the U.S. now. Great responses, far better than if I stood up and lectured on Darwin. And we have a play on Faraday who is lesser known in the U.S., but utterly dependent. We are all utterly dependent on him because he's the person who discovered the ability to generate electricity and invented the transformer and was perhaps the greatest experimental philosopher scientist of the 19th century and came from a very interesting background as a deeply impoverished son of a blacksmith, not trained at Oxbridge, and yet became the uh, head of the Royal Institution and one of the great discoverers of the 19th century. So amazing story to tell. Well, that story for academics or playwrights uh, yeah. is probably relevant too to the journalist. Yeah, I think it's a very, that's a helpful note to end on because so often when I'm writing, I think from a theological perspective, as I've said many times, Catholic, and that kind of informs everything I do. But for the average person, I think you have to be able to reach them and communicate with them where they are. And I think beauty and art are really kind of a, a common mm. ground where we can do that. So thank you so much for being with us. I want to thank Josh for helping host and particularly to thank Stan for being here. Thank it's been you. Great. Oh, it's an honor to be part of this. Thank you for asking.
Faith Angle exists to connect timeless ideas from religion and history with today's leading journalists. Thanks for tuning in, and if you haven't already, please tell a friend and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening.